Well, you have sung quite a bit this evening, and it's been good to hear. What a blessed thing it is to sing glorious hymns, expressive of wonderful biblical truth. Now, I'd like you to turn back to the book of Isaiah. We are, of course, continuing through this book, and I am preaching what I call selected sermons from the book of Isaiah. If we try to expound it in great detail, of course, we should be here in Isaiah for many, many years. The great Puritan Joseph Carroll preached for 36 years in the book of Job. And uh, it wasn't the greatest idea, though it was certainly an extraordinary feat of endurance, both for the preacher and for the congregation. But I understand that by the time he'd finished, the congregation was considerably reduced. So we're not going to go through Isaiah verse by verse, or even chapter by chapter, but we are wanting to try and get a feel for this great evangelical prophet. Isaiah, like most of the great prophets of Israel, exercised his ministry in time of spiritual decline. Indeed, the prophets were basically raised up to call Israel back to their God, to warn them of the impending judgments of God that inevitably came to those who were unfaithful to him and to give them hope in the midst of the darkness that God was nevertheless gracious and especially of course from the New Testament perspective to give to them the messianic foundation and the messianic hope that was so important to this nation. Now you may be interested to observe that for the next five chapters beginning at chapter 28 each of these chapters begin with the word woe. You may want to just glance at that and notice that. 28, 29 and so on. They all begin with the same word. Woe. And so of course he is pronouncing particular judgments but we mustn't think that uh, it's all doom and gloom because of that. We shall find as we go on through these chapters that in fact there are some wonderful statements exciting to faith, stimulating to hope and uh, just magnificent positive statements in the midst of these pronouncements of these woes. Now chapter 28 begins this series. And I want to suggest to you that in this chapter, Isaiah draws for us the features of a nation in spiritual decline. And I want us to observe the characteristics of this uh, nation in spiritual decline and make application to ourselves. A nation in spiritual decline, first of all, observe that Isaiah brings into focus the problem of moral decadence. Moral decadence. Now, moral decadence reveals itself in many ways. It reveals itself, for instance, in sexual immorality. And we were talking a little bit even about that this morning as we tried to understand the times in which we live. It reveals itself also in violence. It reveals itself in injustice, in oppression, in cruelty, in many, many ways. But it's very interesting to see that Isaiah singles out in his day an element of moral decadence that has a very, very contemporary ring, a very relevant ring. He puts his finger on the sin of drunkenness. And I want you to notice this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 28. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards, of Ephraim. Again, down in verse 3, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot. 
And then again in more detail in verse 7, but they also, probably now referring to the people of Judah as opposed to the people of Ephraim, they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. All tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that no place is clean. Here Isaiah paints for us this tragic and pitiful picture, a situation that undoubtedly he had observed with his own eyes, he sees with his own eyes, Uh, he paints a very vivid picture, the picture of an eyewitness, and he paints the picture of a nation where drunkenness was rife. And he addresses the issue head on, very directly, he brings it right into focus. Now I pointed out in the Burlington prayer meeting just last Wednesday that this subject of drunkenness is something that is looked upon with a measure still of jocularity by many in our own particular nation. Just last week in the Hamilton Spectator, Charles Lynch had a column, I mentioned it to the folk at the Burlington prayer meeting, in which he was uh, writing on the question that a television interviewer had asked John Turner. She had asked him about the rumour in Ottawa that he had problem uh, with drink. And he had responded to this. And Charles Lynch wrote this article in which he wrote in a light-hearted vein as though this was something uh, to be laughed at, something to be sniggered at, as it were, drunkenness. Why, he pointed out, you know, our very first Prime Minister, John A. MacDonald, was a a bit of a drunk, he acknowledged that he was, and he went on, pointed out other people, and it was all dealt with in a very light-hearted manner. But I want to point out to you tonight, my friends, that God doesn't see drunkenness in any light-hearted way. God views it as a very serious sin. I want you to look at me at the book of Proverbs for a moment, and see here in Proverbs chapter 23, a very powerful and a very explicit and detailed description and condemnation of drunkenness. Proverbs 23 verse 29 Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent, it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Now the book of Proverbs, full as it is of practical wisdom, has many places where it warns against the folly and the sinfulness, the sinfulness of drunkenness. And here's one of those places. The New Testament, of course, likewise emphasizes the sinfulness of it and warns God's people against it. We began this year of 1988 with looking at the passage in Ephesians 5, you remember? And uh, in the second part of uh, that little exposition of that passage in Ephesians, we observe Paul's directive in Ephesians 5.18 where he tells us to be filled with the Spirit. But he begins by saying to us, do not be drunk with wine. 
but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine. The New Testament, equally with the Old Testament, considers sin as a serious, or drunkenness rather, as a serious sin. And we ought not to treat it lightly. We ought not to treat it as though it's something uh, to be joked about. Why is it so serious? Why does God view drunkenness as being so serious? Well, because it robs men and women of the dignity that God has bestowed upon them. That's one reason. Remember that uh, humanity, men and women, man, if we can use that word in the genetic sense, is the crown of God's creation. We have been made in the image of God. And drunkenness robs men and women of intelligence, it robs them of self-control. It robs them of ability to function as they were created to function as the very vice regents of God in his creation. It robs them of that. It brings them down, as it were, to the level of the beasts. Unintelligent, foolish, in fact sometimes not as intelligent as the beasts themselves, as the drunken person. And because it invariably leads to other sins. Drunkenness is the womb out of which comes forth other sins, invariably. Immorality, violence, profanity, blasphemy, all of these things go along with drunkenness. And if you know anything about uh, drunkenness and the problems it causes, you know that these things are true. Drunkenness is a sign of despair. Why do people get drunk? Well, because they are in despair. Because they sense that life is hopeless. Because they say the only thing to do is, quote, turn to the bottle. No one else to turn to. It's a sign of despair. It's a sign of emptiness. Life has turned sour. There's no satisfaction in life, say such people. And so they turn to drink, and they, we, we use the expression, don't we? They try to drown their sorrows, but inevitably, instead of drowning their sorrows, they merely intensify them. But drunkenness is all of these things. It is a sign of despair. It's a sign of emptiness. It is certainly a sign of indifference to the glory of God. Those who are involved in this sin are certainly indifferent to God's honor and God's glory. And these are some of the reasons for drunkenness. And the word of God says that it should have no part whatsoever in the life of a child of God. No part whatsoever. And we need to heed these words and to take notice of the things that God says to us in his word. Certainly Christians are not to be despairing people, are they? For the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes into the life, brings hope. He is called the God of hope. Now may the God of hope, says Paul to the Romans, in Romans 15, 13, fill you with joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Christ is in the life, there is no despair. If there is despair in the life of a believer, there is something radically wrong. For our Lord Jesus Christ is the bringer of hope into the life of his people. There cannot be emptiness in the life of a believer, surely. Unless we're not in fellowship with God as we ought to be. For Jesus said, I am come that they might have life. And that they might have it more abundantly. And if we haven't gotten, we're not enjoying this abundant life that Jesus Christ brings. We need to search our hearts and find out what is the problem in our life. Why are we not walking in harmony and fellowship with our Lord? For he says, I've brought life more abundantly. Jesus Christ, when he fills the life, you see, 
the Christian ought not to need such things as drink and, the, and drugs and false stimulants. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to satisfy the deepest needs of the heart. And this is why drunkenness ought to have no part whatsoever in the life of the Christian. In fact, the Apostle Paul, let me remind you, if you look with me at Galatians 5, if you have your Bibles there, Galatians chapter 5, Paul describes drunkenness in terms of the work of the flesh. Now when he uses that expression, he means the outworking of the unregenerate, unrenewed nature. The works of the flesh. Galatians 5.19 Now the works of the flesh. What is it that characterizes the unconverted person? What is it that characterizes the unregenerate nature? Well, he says, I'll tell you. The works of the flesh are evidence, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders. Now notice, drunkenness revelries and the like of which I tell you beforehand just as I also told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God says Paul those whose lives are characterized by the practice the practice of the works of the flesh they will not inherit the kingdom of God says the apostle and drunkenness is one of these And my dear friends, I'm emphasizing this because sometimes, you know, Christians do fall into drunkenness. Yes, they do sometimes. I am not suggesting that Christians practice it, for if they do, they have cause to wonder whether they are Christians at all in the light of what we've just read. For Paul says those who practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But you think of Noah, a godly man in the Old Testament. And Noah, in spite of his uprightness, in spite of the fact that grace was shown unto him, we find in Genesis Noah falling into the sin of drunkenness and shamefully behaving. And even in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians. And he had to rebuke them because, you know, in the ancient church, it seems, as far as historical research can discover, that the church often, certainly the church in Corinth, had what they call love feasts that preceded the observance of the Lord's Supper. They would gather together and they would bring their food and their drink and they would have a meal together and then they would move into the Lord's Supper. But disgraceful things were happening at these love feasts. Gluttony was evident at the love feast. Inconsideration for others was considered. The rich despising the poor. And lo and behold, to the shame of the church, Paul has to say to them in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 11, In eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What, he says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? seems here as far as I can ascertain that Paul was speaking literally of those who in their foolishness and in their sinfulness even became drunk at these things. Shame on you, said Paul. And so my dear friends, this is not something that's just academic to Christians. 
It isn't something that's just sort of out there, you know, and it can't touch the belief. We need to be word in the day in which we live, when we are constantly bombarded by liquor advertising, we need to be word of this particular area of things. And Christians need to be extremely careful when it comes to the question of strong drink. Because it can be a snare to the Christian. And if it's any kind of problem whatsoever, or if it even gives the appearance or the semblance of danger we all are wise, I would suggest to put it from us as far as the east is from the west. Beware of the snare in strong dream. Drunkenness is condemned by God and it's one of the features and the characteristics of this declining nation. Notice in the second place that the declension revealed itself in the despising of God's servants. Now I need to explain verse 9 and 10 here because I often, I think it's often misunderstood. What we have in verse 9 and verse 10 is in fact a report, as it were, of the derisive speech of the Israelites, of the people of Judah. This is not God speaking, as it were. You see that in our New King James Version, it is put in quotes, and having checked out the best Old Testament commentators and scholars that I could, I find them in agreement that what is, is recorded here is the derisive speech of the men of Judah. Whom will he teach? He being Isaiah the prophet. Whom will he teach? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breast? They're saying, as it were, who does this fellow think he is? Who, who does he believe he's teaching here? What condition does he think we're in? For precept must be upon precept. Now they're mocking his teaching. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Here a little, there a little. They're mocking the ministry of Isaiah. And they're saying, you know, does he think we're children? Does he think that we've just been weaned? Does he think that we're little ones to whom he has to speak in this way? Of course the tragic and ironic fact is that that's exactly what they were. But it is always the case, is it not, that the people who need the message most are usually the people who think it doesn't apply to them. That is so often the, the, the problem, you know. Preachers know all about this, believe me. In every congregation, and sometimes you preach a message and, and you, you know in your heart this message is very much applicable to particular people, and yet those particular people seem to be utterly unmoved by it. And others perhaps to whom the relevance was somewhat secondary are the ones who really take it seriously. Oh, the tragedy, how many pastors have wept in their studies and pled with God and poured out their hearts to God because the very people who needed the message are the ones who said, well, that doesn't apply to me, does it? And this is what these people were saying. Who will he teach knowledge? And who will he make to understand the message? Oh, we are, we are people that know. We are people who are instructed in the things of God. We are the men of Judah. We are the people of God. And we're tired of his preaching and his constant coming to us again and again, repetitively, line upon line, precept upon precept. Away with him, they said. Away with this. We're not going to take this. 
And so the decadence of this nation, you see, revealed itself in their despising the servants of God. And you know, it's always the case. It's always the case. You see, to those bent on sinning, to those bent on living a life that is contrary to the word of God, those who bring God's word to them and proclaim God's word to them are always unpopular people. Of course. Tradition tells us that Isaiah suffered a horrible death. I don't know how verifiable it is, but the tradition is that in the reign of Manasseh, he was sawn asunder and hacked into pieces. Certainly, there's no question that the prophet suffered. You have the clear words of Jeremiah in chapter 11. He speaks about the men of his own village who rose up against him in chapter 11 of Jeremiah, verse 19. He says, I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. This is an assassination plot against the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 21, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hands. You see, Jeremiah's message wasn't a popular message. And they said, Shut up! Don't preach to us anymore! We'll kill you! And then later on in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 38, we have the record of how Jeremiah was thrown into this wretched dungeon, sinking down into the mud. Chapter 38 and verse 6, they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the king's son. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sank in the mire. He is the prophet of God. He is the servant of God. He's thrown into this horrible, stinking dungeon. If you remember the story of Micaiah, Micaiah lived in the reign of Ahab in Israel, Jehoshaphat in Judah. Jehoshaphat had foolishly come together with Ahab and said, well now let's have an alliance together. Let's go against the Syrians. And uh, Ahab had called for this and Jehoshaphat had foolishly agreed. And so uh, Ahab had surrounded himself, of course, with hundreds of false prophets. And Jehoshaphat's not sure that something in Jehoshaphat was basically a good king. And he had enough spiritual savvy to know that, you know, something isn't quite right here. He said, is there any other prophet? Oh, said Ahab, there is that guy in Micaiah. But every time I send for him, he tells me things I don't like to hear. Well, Jehoshaphat said, let's hear him anyway. We've heard all these other, let's hear him. So Micaiah comes out, of course, and he prophesies the death of Ahab. And Ahab says, take this guy away and put him in the prison and put him on bread and water. Let him suffer there for a while more. You read in Amos chapter 7, how the high priest in Samaria rose up and said, get out! You're not authorized to prophesy here. Why? Because Amos brought a very serious and sober message of judgment. So it has been all the way down the years. What about the great apostle Paul, this wonderful man of God? Oh, listen to this man. You know, sometimes we, we romanticize the life of people in the past, you know. Ah, oh, we say, wouldn't it have been wonderful to travel with the apostle Paul? Are you sure? Are you sure? Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Wouldn't it be wonderful to be part of the apostolic band? Well, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9. He says, I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now he's using a little bit of irony here, a little bit of sarcasm, because, you know, the Corinthians had really gone off the rails in some things. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. See, this is what they thought. Oh, we're wise, we're strong. So Paul's really just rubbing it in a little bit. You are distinguished. But we, apostles, we are dishonored. Even to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure it, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. That's not a very pretty picture, is it? What about our Lord Jesus Christ himself? Consider him, says the writer to the Hebrews, who endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself. You see, the servants of God are always despised by those who are bent on living in defiance of the word of God. It's the same in our generation. It's the same in every generation. And that leads me to say in the third place that Isaiah brings to focus here this element of decline, the refusal to hear the word of God. And so in verse 11 and 12 we have it, you see. With stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people. That's a reference to the Assyrians that God was going to bring in judgment upon them. Their language they wouldn't be able to understand. And God himself now is exercising a little bit of irony. And he's saying, well, yes, I'm going to speak to this people with stammering lips. You talk about Isaiah, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Well, he says, I'm going to speak to you in language that you won't be able to understand with people of another tongue. It'll be the Assyrians, and they're going to defeat you, and they're going to take you off into captivity. The Babylonians, in particular. But notice verse 12. To whom he said, now here's God speaking. This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. This was God's gracious message to them. And this is the refreshing. But they would not hear. So God had brought to them a gracious message. He said, come, I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. I'll give you blessing. I'll give you security. I'll meet your every need. But they wouldn't hear it. And they rejected the word of God as they rejected the servants of God. Now why did they do this? And why do people do this? Why do people reject the word of God and refuse to hear the word of God? Why do people refuse to hear the message of the Bible? Let me tell you a few, suggest a few reasons to you. First, because of course it challenges their behavior. The Bible does that, doesn't it? It challenges our behavior. It is profitable, says Paul, for correction. The Bible corrects us. The Bible rebukes us. It says you're wrong living this way. You must repent of living this way. You must live this way. 
this is the way that God would have you walk. Walk in it. Well, people don't like that. You know, in the book of Judges, you keep coming up against a certain refrain in the book of Judges again and again and again. In those days, everyone did that which was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. It comes again and again and again. In the day there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the result was chaos. You can write over the entire book of Judges. Chaos, confusion, apostasy. Why? Because everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. There was no authority. There was no central authority. There was no king. The book of Judges is basically preparatory for David. They needed a David. They needed someone to tell them the word of God and to lead them in the ways of God. But in that day there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own day. In his own eyes, rather. And in our own day, in 1988, what have we got? Well, we've got people clamoring for the same thing. Do your own thing. This is the idea. This has been the watchword for many years. Do your own thing. And let me repeat what I said in the Bible class this morning. I mentioned in the Bible class how that you know almost anything is accepted in these days. Anything goes except being what is called judgmental. You mustn't be judgmental. What does that mean? Well, you mustn't say to people, this is wrong. You mustn't say adultery is wrong. Well, now it may be wrong in your eyes, but maybe in his eyes it's okay. Then you mustn't say it's wrong. That's being judgmental. Living and having sexual relationships with all kinds of various people, or as the common euphemism is, having a variety of sexual partners. Well, you mustn't say this is wrong, says the modern man, because you see it that's judgmental. It might be wrong for you, all right, fine, but you mustn't say it's wrong for this person. And as I said in the Bible class, it has now moved into the area of perversion and homosexuality. Or you mustn't say it's wrong. It is an alternate lifestyle. It's just a different way of approaching things. But you mustn't be judgmental. Well, this is the modern way, isn't it? This is the modern approach to things. And of course, if you swallow that, if you swallow that as our generation is hook, line and sinker, then the Bible is not a very welcome book, is it? Because the Bible has a habit of saying in very dogmatic fashion, this is right and this is wrong. The marriage bed, says Hebrews 13, is honorable in all, but who among us God will judge? The Bible is a very dogmatic book, that's true. God says, thou shalt, thou shalt not. But modern man doesn't like this. 20th century man doesn't like this. And when we live contrary to the Bible, the Bible says, you are in the wrong. And you're doing wrong. And unless you repent, God will judge you for it. Modern man doesn't like to hear that. Maybe someone here this evening doesn't like the Bible too much because of that. You're refusing to hear the word of God because of this. Oh, the words of John chapter 3. We read verse 19 this morning. Let me read verse 20 now. John 3 and verse 20. Very apropos here. John chapter 3 and verse 20 says, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light 
lest his deed should be exposed. Why is it that people shun the scriptures? Why is it that people refuse to hear the word of God? Because the light of the word of God exposes their sinful activity, that's why. And so they keep clear. And furthermore, it's not only that the Bible challenges their behavior, but it convicts their conscience. The Bible has a way of doing this, you know. It convicts the conscience, doesn't it? The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4 said this about the Word of God. In verse 12, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrows and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is quick and powerful. It calls itself in Ephesians 6 the sword of the Spirit. <coughs> and the Spirit of God takes the word of God and applies it and sends it in, dividing between our thoughts and the deepest parts of our hearts and it brings conviction to the conscience. But wrongdoers don't like their consciences being activated. And therefore they refuse to hear the Bible. They want the Bible closed. They want the Bible silent. Maybe one of the reasons why someone here tonight is neglecting their Bible is because when you read it, it just gets into that conscience of yours and convicts you in your conscience and bothers you in your conscience. Listen, let me warn you, my friend, do not suppress that. You thank God for that. Respond positively to that. Don't start fooling around with bludgeoning your conscience or you'll end up in dreadful sin. And furthermore, of course, the Bible is uncompromising, isn't it? God's word isn't going to change. Forever, O oh Lord, says David, your word is settled in heaven. God isn't going to rewrite the Bible. God isn't going to change his word. He's not going to change his mind. And you can't bribe the scriptures, can you? You can't bribe the Bible. You can't say to the Bible, well now listen, look, you, you just take this and, and say something else. You can't do that to the Bible. It speaks and it speaks once and for all. You can't get around it. You know when, we all remember I suppose when we were children and our parents would perhaps say to us, well now, we weren't, we weren't going to visit Aunt Murray's, but we don't have time without shopping we're going to visit at Murray's and we, we're just going to have to skip that now we're going to have to skip ah oh, but at Murray's the place where we get all those candies you know and all those chocolates so you begin to work on mum oh can't we go can't we go to at Murray's we haven't been for so long you know and it's going to be a long time since we'll go next time and we begin to work on mum and work on dad until finally maybe they said oh well okay maybe we can pop in just for five minutes well, of course, that's all right. That's just a childish little thing. But sometimes we imagine that we can sort of work on God that way. And we imagine that somehow, if we just uh, hang in long enough, that the Bible is going to change its message. But it's not. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is set in heaven. And furthermore, let me say, the Bible is very clear. The Bible is very clear. Oh, there are mysteries in the Scripture. There are profound mysteries in the Bible that we'll never adequately understand until glory. But when it comes to the way that God wants us to live and how he wants us to behave and act before him, it's pretty clear. 
I've quoted so many times that uh, comment of the great novelist Mark Twain, who was not a Bible believer as far as I know. But Mark Twain said, you recall, well, he said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, it's the things I do understand that bother me. And I can well relate to what he was saying. It isn't the Bible is so obscure, though people would like to have us believe that. It's because the Bible says things so clearly that challenge us and challenge our lifestyle. And oh, how many times we try to evade the force of the Word of God. Hence people refuse to hear the Word. God says, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. This is the refreshing. Yes, they would not be. Ah, oh, my friend, I beg you tonight, if you are one refusing to hear the word of God, to recognize the folly of that. There is nothing so foolish, you know, as refusing to hear the word of God. The only result of that is disaster. We always bring disaster on ourselves when we refuse to hear the word of God. It's so foolish. It's so foolish. Jesus Christ himself wept over the city of Jerusalem. He wept over it. And the Greek text there indicates not just the quiet weeping, you know, not just the quiet weeping when tears came down his cheeks, but he wouldn't hear very much. The word that is used by the writer of the Gospel speaks of a, uh, of a sobbing and an outpouring of grief as he wept over Jerusalem with weeping. You could hear yards away and he said oh Jerusalem if only you knew the things that made for your peace how often would I have gathered you but you would not behold he says your house is left unto you desolate and within 70 years the city was razed to the ground the temple was a smoldering ruin and millions of Jews had been butchered by the Roman army We always bring disaster on ourselves when we refuse to hear the word of God. Let me just point out one other thing briefly. And that is that we have here Isaiah putting his finger upon foolish self-confidence. Verse 14, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, now he's going to quote the people of Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement, when the overflowing scourge passes through it will not come to us for we have made lies our refuge and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves now you see what he's saying here this is not a direct quote of a basic quote Isaiah again is using a little irony here but he's saying this is what your behavior is translated to me you are the men who have made a covenant with death and with the grave with lies your refuge and you've hidden yourselves under false they were saying in other words we can take care of ourselves Isaiah keep your warnings of judgment to yourself we can take care of ourselves nothing is going to happen to us we are not worried you know on Tuesday night going through the the children's pilgrim progress with the boys and girls remember those boys and girls that were out on Tuesday night we met up with a character called Mr. Vainglory. Remember that? Vainglory. Yes, Vainglory. Who's Vainglory? He's the man whose confidence is founded on a lie. 
founded on nothing. No sound foundation for his confidence. You may be confident, but without any real foundation for it, it ends in disaster. These people were confident. Oh, they said, it's okay, we're fine. No problem. We, you know, when the scourge comes, it's not going to harm us. No problem. But notice how Isaiah goes on in verse 17. He says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. Ah, he says, you may be confident, but your confidence has no solid basis, no ground in factuality. And you're going to be swept away by the oncoming horn. Oh, the foolishness of self-confidence. And how many people in this world, and maybe some even here in the very service tonight, they say, oh no, I'm not saved, I've never been born again, I don't know Christ in an intimate and real way, but I'll be alright, everything's going to be okay. I'm sure that I have nothing to worry about, my dear friend, if you're not saved tonight, you have everything to worry about. You'd better worry. If you know not Christ, and if you don't know the joy of sins forgiven and if you don't know what it is to be able to say I know whom I have believed you'd better worry because your confidence is vain confidence it has no foundation and it will collapse under the judgment of God now in the midst of all this I must hurry to a close but in the midst of all of this sobering and searching analysis of this nation of spiritual decline. In the midst of this, here sparkles a jewel of grace in verse 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And in connection with Isaiah's people, this surely had to be God himself and God and his faithfulness. But in the light of the New Testament, you have this verse quoted twice in the New Testament. In Romans 9.33 and 1 Peter 2 and 6, and it is applied most wonderfully to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Listen to Peter's reference, it's such a beautiful one. 1 Peter 2 verse 4 coming to him that is to Jesus as to a living stone rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ therefore it is also contained in the scripture behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect precious and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Ah, you see, God is saying to us tonight, listen, in a world that is under judgment, in a world that is crumbling, in a world that is falling apart, Behold, I have laid in Zion a chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ is a sure foundation for sinners. You can trust in him. It's a tried stone, he says. 
It's a precious cornerstone. It is a sure foundation. Jesus Christ is able to save sinners. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to transform the lives of the vilest sinners. He is able to reconcile men and women to God. Where there is repentance for sin and where there is faith in Christ, he who believes will not act hastily. That is, he won't do foolish things contrary to the directives of God. But he who hears the word of God and sees Jesus Christ as the foundation stone of life and the sure foundation of salvation and cast themselves on him, they'll be saved, says the word of God. And to those who believe, Jesus Christ becomes precious, precious, precious. Ah, dear friends, we talked this morning about understanding our times. Understanding our times. We talked about the revelation of the true nature of men, human nature without the grace of God. In all of its rebellion, in all of its blindness, in all of its unbelief and hardness. We talked about the revelation of the wrath of God in God giving men and women over to their own vile passions and lusts, as Romans 1 outlined it, in sending strong delusion that those who refuse the truth might believe a lie and be damned. Awesome things, sobering things. And in the midst of this dark world, and it is a dark world, we better believe it. In the midst of it, God points to the light. He points us to hope. He points us to a foundation upon which we can place ourselves and be sure in terms of this life and the life to come. And that foundation is Jesus Christ, for Paul so beautifully puts it, no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. See, he is the answer to your deepest need. And as the world moves on to judgment, you must know him. You must know him. This tried, precious, elect cornerstone. Oh, that we might tonight, those of us who are here in this service, that we might come to him. You see the way Peter put it? To whom coming? To whom coming? Christ, the precious foundation stone of God. Is your life on him tonight? Is your life firmly, soundly, clearly committed to him? He's the only foundation. He's the only hope. And as we peruse the characteristics of this nation in spiritual decline, may it be that we shall find ourselves far removed from these things. And our life built on Christ and growing up into him he becoming precious to us so that when we stand before God on that great day we shall be able to say with Count Zinzendorf bold shall I stand in that great day for who or shall my to my charge shall lay fully absolved from these I am by these I am from sin's tremendous curse and shame Jesus Thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious strength. Oh, may God grant it. Let us pray to you. Our Father and our God, 
we thank you for your precious word we thank you Lord that in this magnificent prophet we find words so relevant